Would you pray with me? Come now, O Lord, in power and in might. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, as we get underway, I want to rush to thank Dean Still for this kind invitation and thank you, of course, for your attention. Thank you uh, to the miembros de la gente, mi gente. Thank you so much to everybody on the chapel uh, worship team for reading scripture, for leading us in songs in English and in Spanish. Uh, I am delighted. My heart was, was full. And as a Baptist, I was trying to resist the urge to dance while singing. Uh, so I had to keep my feet planted on solid ground. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're in Proverbs chapter 3, so I invite you to turn there if you don't have that passage open already. Proverbs 3, 21 through 35. Um, by way of introduction, for those of you who don't know me that well, Dr. Still mentioned that I've been here for almost three years. If you've taken a class with me, if you know me personally, uh, you know that I come from a strange planet called New Jersey. Uh, this planet is filled with various alien life forms, uh, such as Buddy from Cake Boss, uh, the Desperate Housewives of New Jersey, two members of the Jersey Shore cast, not all of them were from New Jersey, uh, and some of our more famous alien life forms like John Bon Jovi, uh, Whitney Houston, and of course the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Now, if you mash up together my alien sensibilities with the fact that I'm a father of three kids, soon to be 14, 12 and 8, what you get is this strange, even eclectic mix of someone who's nostalgic about what he was doing at their age uh, in a land far away in a time long ago. Uh, a time filled with houses painted with lead paint, uh, no internet, uh, no nutrition labels or content warnings, and most, of, most importantly, of course, no helicopter parents, free-range children uh, during that era. Uh, some of my more favorite memories from that time uh, come from when my parents would take us into New York City on New Jersey Transit. Some of you have been on that route if you've been to New Jersey. Uh, family members would come from Honduras to visit us, and of course they wanted to see the sights in New York, and so we would take them into the city. And I remember these great adventures filled with wonderful memories, seeing new things, learning new things, going new places. What I didn't really understand at the time is that my parents were doing a couple different layers of teaching. They wanted me to learn about the sites, about the places, but they also wanted me to learn how to be street smart. Uh, they wanted me to learn to be street smart with them when I was young so that one day when I was old, I'd be street smart when the time came for me to go into the city on my own. Maybe they were a little smarter than I gave them credit for. I mean, a lot of this stuff is common sense. It's, it's basic stuff. A lot of it was caught rather than taught. Don't be a wise guy with a conductor on the train. He or she doesn't have the time or patience for it. Uh, put your wallet in your front pocket, especially if you're on a crowded subway. Disperse your money in different places on your body so that if something bad happens to you, then you won't be caught unprepared. Uh, don't be uh, too friendly with strangers. They might think that you're trying to scam them, and if they're trying to be really friendly with you, they might be trying to scam you. 
Always, always remember that not every person dressed like Elmo in Times Square is friendly. <laughs> A lot of it's caught rather than taught. Yet they were trying to teach me something important. And I would, I would venture to say that their lesson is not lost on me now that I teach at a seminary. See, they were trying to teach me to be smart in the right kinds of ways for the right kinds of reasons at the right kinds of times. They weren't trying to teach me timeless truths. They weren't trying to teach me uh, acontextual principles. They were trying to teach me how to do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reasons. What to do and what not to do, what to say and what not to say. It's not lost on me now that I teach at a seminary that one of our jobs is to teach you to be street smart. Uh, one of our jobs is to teach you that loving people and loving texts are not the same thing. Uh, one of our jobs is to set you free from the seduction of success in ministry. You see, Jesus didn't really have much to say about success. He had a lot more to say about faithfulness and fruitfulness. Are you connected to the vine? Are you multiplying what I've entrusted to you? It's our job to remind you that you could even earn a PhD and at least according to scripture still be called a fool. Street smarts, survival skills, life skills, trying to know how to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. What my parents were doing was actually a secularized version of what Hebrew parents have been doing with their children for thousands of years. They've been trying to teach them to be street smart. We could say Christian parents as well, trying to give children survival skills, life skills, an ability, an intuition, a wisdom when it comes to knowing to do the right things in the right ways at the right times for the right reasons. Is it any wonder then that the vision that I'm describing is also the vision that's laid out in our text for this morning? We're in Proverbs 3, 21 through 35. Let me say a little more explicitly what I mean. I want you to notice those first verses in verse 21. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you and ornament to grace your neck. It's not just the entire book of Proverbs, but especially Proverbs 1 through 9 that uses this language of parents instructing a son. We might say sons and daughters, of course, but we learn about this at the beginning of Proverbs 1 when uh, the father says in chapter 1, verse 8, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. They're a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. This is how I know that Dr. Garland is a world-class biblical scholar. The name Alcantara is nowhere in the Bible, but Garland is right here in Proverbs 1, verse 9. Listen, heed, pay attention. It shows up at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Again, my son, if you accept my words, store up my commands within you. I'm skipping ahead to verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching. Keep my commands 
in your heart, for they'll prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And now, verse 21, my son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you. An ornament to grace your neck. Let me suggest to you that in these verses, there's a framework here. I want to call it a, a ground and a goal. Now, I think in imagery as well. So let me say an anchor that helps us be secured in the ways that we need to be secured and a sail that sets us free to go to the places that God would call us to go. Let me start with the anchor. And the anchor is this. The power to reach out comes from a commitment to reach up. I'm going to talk about what I mean in just a moment. But I invite you to look back with me at verse 21 through 22 again. There are these rich images, beautiful language here. Do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Maybe it's because I'm a parent of three kids, but I remember when they were young, I had to be hyper aware of everything they were doing. I had to make sure to keep my eyes attuned, my eyes fixed, to make sure that I was aware not only of what was in front of me, but the surroundings around me. The, the parents are saying, I want you to treat wisdom and understanding that way. I want you to be attuned. I want you to be fixed. I want you to look out for these. They will be life for you an ornament to grace your neck. I mentioned the garland around your head, the chain around your neck in chapter 1, verse 8. If you look at chapter 3, verse 3, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. There's such a thing as wearing virtue. Reminded of the New Testament, clothe yourselves with compassion. So you have this rich imagery, but what we could fail to notice or observe is the ways that these verses are connected to the preceding ones. In fact, in the English translation, those words, wisdom and understanding, those are insertions. We could roughly translate it as, let, do not let these out of your sight. So then you have to ask, where do the these come from? They come from verses 19 through 20. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided, and the clouds let drop their dew. The power to reach out comes from a commitment to reach up. You see, God is the one who set the foundations of the earth in place. God is the one who sets the seas in balance. God is the one who gives the gift of wisdom and understanding in the first place. So not to let wisdom and understanding out of your sight is another way of saying not to let God out of your sight. In fact, at the beginning of Proverbs, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Derek Kidner has this to say, Beginning means the first and controlling principle rather than a stage which one leaves behind. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 3, verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. The first half of that verse is something every professor and seminarian needs to hear. 
Fear the Lord. Shun evil. Later on, honor the Lord with your wealth. Later on, do not despise the Lord's discipline. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord is the ground of all things. The Lord is the one in whom we place our trust. I want to say that there's a danger, a seduction even, that can come to us to leave God behind in our work. Could it be that we become so used to dwelling in holy things that they become common? Could it be that we create a rupture between sacred spaces and things and secular decision-making? Could it be that even in a seminary, we might become what Robert Bella refers to as pragmatic atheists? Could it be that even in a seminary, that we get so used to walking for God that we forget to walk with God. You see, the power to reach out comes from a commitment to reach up. God is the center of this whole framework that the parents want to lay out. And then you have these curious verses that show up starting in verse 23. Then you'll go on your way in safety. Your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you'll not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet? Question mark. <laughs> and there's a lot of ways to think about this. I like the language that Carol Newsom uses. She says this is an iconic narrative a community's expression of how it understands the foundational structures of reality and the nature and tendencies of the world. In short, how the world works, end quote. I'll at least say how the world should work when all is set right on the right foundations. We do ourselves a disservice and we do our people a disservice when we turn Proverbs into a contextual principles or timeless promises that apply in all situations and at all times. Even when my parents were teaching me to be street smart with the conductor, there could be a situation in which this conductor wanted to be friendly with me, wanted to have a conversation with me. There could be a situation that didn't apply in every situation. Tremper Longman uses this example that when someone's preparing Thanksgiving dinner, they might say, too many cooks in the kitchen. And after Thanksgiving dinner, they'll say, many hands make light work. <laughs> so how do we wrestle with this? When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Uh, this hit home to me last week. I was trying to do a deep dive into the exegesis and I was feeling like, okay, I'm trying to get my mind around this. I went to bed sometime around 11 or midnight. My brain was kind of in the world of the text and thinking about this passage. And sure enough, two o'clock in the morning, terrible nightmare. I wake up, my heart is racing, sweating. And I assure you at that moment, my sleep was not sweet. I was awake from two to five o'clock in the morning I caught a little bit of sleep from 5.15 to 6, and then I taught my class at 8 a.m. I tried to go home later that day, just 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, something just to feel a little bit 
better and give me energy for the rest of the day, but no rest for the weary. My mind was going at a million miles an hour, and I just couldn't rest, couldn't sleep. I was really anxious and worried. And I was also anxious and worried about, you know, what, what all of this uh, means. What am I stressed about? What am I worried about? But then I felt much better, and I realized that it wasn't my sin. It was Dr. Still's sin this whole time. No, no, I'm just joking. Just joking. <laughs> no, no. No, not at all. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's important for us to see that even though the world doesn't always work as it should, there's a beauty and a wonder to an iconic narrative, isn't there? To picturing not only the way things are supposed to be, but to use Kevin Van Hooser's phrase, the way things really are in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be wonderful to see things that way? So you do have this emphasis on connecting things back to God, on recognizing that the world is set on these foundations and that when the world works, it can be a beautiful thing. There's bookends around this text. The Lord's the one who set the foundations. And if you look at verse 26, the Lord is the one who will be at your side someday when the sudden disaster and ruin overtakes the wicked. Even if the world doesn't work in the way that it should in the spaces in between, the God who's with you at the foundations is the God who will be at your side. This is good news. Now, I mentioned at the outset that there's a ground and there's a goal, there's an anchor and there's a sail. Let me get to the goal. Let me get to the sail. So the ground is the power to reach out comes from a commitment to reach up. And the sail, the goal is this. Those who reach up to God will have to reach out to others. I should have noticed the turn toward neighbor love in verse 27. There's a turn, starting in verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Stop for a moment. Sometimes we'll see a phrase like this, those to whom it is due, and we'll interpret it as those who deserve it. And often we'll interpret that as those who are like us, those who agree with us, those who see the world the way that we see the world, but that's not what's going on here. Those to whom it is due means those to whom we should give good, which is another way of saying everybody. Michael V. Fox, the Proverbs commentator, points this out that in Exodus 23, 4 through 5, there's a statement there that if, you're a, if someone's donkey wanders off into a field, even if that person's your enemy, it's your responsibility to bring it back. That if a, an enemy's donkey falls into a ditch, it's your responsibility to get that donkey out of it. The important thing in that situation is not who's right and who's wrong when it comes to you and your enemy. The important thing in that situation is what is right and what is wrong. Do not withhold those to whom... Good from those with, to whom it is due. That's another way of saying everyone at all times, in all situations, is worthy of dignity and respect, regardless of what you think about them, regardless of whether or not they're a stranger or an enemy or their ox or donkey has fallen into a ditch. 
Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you, when you already have it with you. The word for neighbor here doesn't mean the one who's in close proximity to you. It actually means anyone in need of help. The way Jesus talks about neighbors, that's what's being talked about here. Anyone in need of help. Keep your promises with anyone in need of help. Don't plot evil or harm. That's verse 29. Against anyone in need of help who lives trustfully near you. Don't accuse anyone in need of help and anyone at all for no reason when they've done you no harm. That word there is quarrel. Do not quarrel for no reason. Last time I checked, there's no gift in the spiritual gifts inventory of a critical or quarrelsome spirit. those who are in close proximity to you, and those who are your strangers and even your enemies, you are called to practice radical neighbor love. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways, for violence begets violence, and according to Proverbs 14, verse 30, envy will rot your bones. And so, there is this call to taking our commitment to reaching up and undeniably, unmistakably using it to reach out. That's the goal. That's the sail that would take us where God would call us to go. A love toward anyone in need of help, even the stranger, even an enemy. Now this does lead us to ask some important questions. Questions that any and every gospel minister should ask and must ask. Let me start with the first one. How will you use your power to act? That's right there in verse 27. When it is in your power to act, you've been given power to speak, and you've been given power to act, but then the question becomes, how will you use that power to speak and power to act? Will you hoard your power? Will you share it? Will you acquire power? Or will you release it? Will you do what the Gentiles do, Jesus says in Mark 10, exercising authority and lording that authority over people? Or will you heed Jesus' call in Mark 10, not so with you? So what will you do? with your power to act. Second question, how will you define your neighbor? How will you define your neighbor? Is your neighbor just someone who looks like you, who's in close proximity to you, who votes for the candidates you vote for, who likes the things you like, who reads the things you like to read, who reposts the things that you repost? Or is your neighbor anyone in need of help? Is your neighbor a stranger, an enemy, someone who might speak a different language than you do, or come from a different country than you do, or be persuaded of different things than you're persuaded of? Who's your neighbor? I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's prayer in his book, A Grief Observed, not my idea of God, but God. Not my idea of my neighbor, but my neighbor. My neighbor. 
Then we have this question, one more. How will you bring into congruence the same things that are brought into congruence in Proverbs 3? Reaching up and reaching out. Jesus does not really leave room for first order and second order things. For loving God and the afterthought of loving your neighbor. That's not how the great commandment works. So the question comes to us, what will we do? Some of us are really good at the reaching out, and perhaps we should ask ourselves if we've left God behind. Some of us are really good at the reaching out or reaching up, and perhaps we should ask ourselves if we've left people behind. I'm reminded of Rene Padilla and Samuel Escobar. Padilla came from Ecuador, Escobar came from Peru, and when they sat down with North American leaders at the Lausanne, Lausanne Congress for world evangelization. They reminded them of their Christian social responsibility. They reminded them that it was not a choice between proclamation and evangelism or compassion and justice. It was proclamation and evangelism and compassion and justice. North American theologians who had been influenced by the social gospel were fearful of this, and they asked them questions like, why are you Latin American theologians so insistent on socializing the gospel? Padilla and Escobar responded, and I'll paraphrase, with a deeper question. Why is it that you North American theologians are so afraid of gospelizing the social? Here's Martin Luther King, Jr. in his sermon, Why Jesus Called a Man a Fool. It's all right to talk about heaven. I talk about it because I believe firmly in immortality. But you've got to talk about the earth. It's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder. But I want a suit and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey in heaven. But I want some food to eat down here. It's even all right to talk about the new Jerusalem. But one day we must begin to talk about the new Chicago, the new Atlanta, the new New York, the new America. So here we have it, that there is this call to reach up and this call to reach out. There is this ground and this goal, this anchor and this sail. We need both in order to get a fuller understanding of the framework the foundations on which the earth is set. But there's one more thing what we need, if I could call it a thing. I want you to look back at this passage one more time. I already mentioned verses 19 through 20 and how they frame what happens next. But there's also a theme that shows up over and over again. After the instruction comes to have no fear of sudden disaster or the ruin that overtakes the wicked, that's verse 25. I already mentioned this. There is this beautiful statement, for the Lord will be at your side. And perhaps I'm using my sanctified imagination here, but I see Jesus telling a group of worried and confused disciples, surely I will be with you even to the end of the age. Skip ahead to verse 32. 
For the Lord detests the perverse, but takes the upright into his confidence. Usually in the Hebrew scriptures, that space of counsel is only reserved for angels, heavenly beings. But those who walk in the ways of the Lord are somehow taken into God's counsel, his confidence. I hear Jesus saying to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Verse 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. It's not just the individual, but the sphere of the individual that is impacted here. And I can hear Jesus saying, perhaps even to seminarians, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I read this phrase, he mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. It is curious that this shows up in James 4 and in 1 Peter 5 to oppressed communities needing to hope in the fact that someday things will be vindicated. But it's also curious that Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. The wise inherit honor, verse 35, but fools only get shame. I hear Jesus saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and one day I'll come back so that you can be where I will be. Yes, I know that Jesus isn't in Proverbs 3. But I also know that somehow Proverbs 3 was in Jesus. We see it everywhere, don't we? There's a hope in this text. You see, we could get too horizontal rather than vertical. We could get too moralistic rather than redemptive. We could get too humanistic rather than theological, and what we would fail to see is that God's fingerprints are all over this passage, that God is the one who blesses and sustains and preserves the righteous, that God is the one who's made a promise not only at the foundations of the earth, but also in the final analysis. You see, there's a truth about God, which is this. God has promised to show up for those who reach up. And who reach out. Say that one more time. God has promised to show up for those who reach up and who reach out. You know, recently I've been reflecting more and more and learning more and more about the life of George W. Truett. I heard a story and I tried to track down some of the details of it because I was so intrigued by it. Now, we all know that Truett was not a, a perfect person. In fact, from what I know about him, he would be the first to tell us that. But I also know that here was someone who loved God, loved this university, loved the church, loved God's people. Back in the day when he was pastoring his church in Dallas, they would have a Wednesday night Congregational supper. And people would come from far and wide in order to en enjoy the meal and have Bible study. And 
There were these three little children named Anne and Jerry and Jim. Their mother was a single mom. She was at work. They would cobble together their money so that they could come to Bible study and that they could eat a meal because they were poor and hungry. Sometimes they'd have enough money for the bus fare and the meal. Other times, they just have enough money for the bus fare and not the meal. It was a small amount that people paid just to contribute to the cost. Sometimes they didn't have enough money for it. One time, Truett was walking around as people were eating their Wednesday meal. And he saw these three little kids standing along the wall. It was, it was these three children. And he said, what's going on? They said, well, we don't have enough money to eat. And he said, why don't you sit with me at my table? You can be my honored guests. One day, these three kids grew up. They all went to this university. Jerry became a biblical archaeologist, taught at Southern Seminary, Mississippi College. Jim, whose wife is still living, and told me if Jim were here, he'd want to make sure that you included that they had cherry pie that night. They had never had cherry pie before. Jim went on to become a professor of history here and taught for decades. Anne, who married, became Anne Vardaman Miller, the celebrated poet, the teacher who impacted generations of students here, who still tell stories about her impact on their life. In fact, in one poem, she dedicated it to George Truitt. Now, you know and I know that this sort of thing happens only because God is rich in grace and mercy, because God can do extraordinary things through ordinary people who are just willing to trust him. But I also think something happened in that little fellowship hall that night. I think God honored faithful obedience. I think God showed up in the lives of people who are willing to reach up and reach out. I wonder if God looked down and said, now there's someone with street smarts. Let's pray. Oh God, would you help us? Perhaps we're good at reaching out and we need to learn again to reach up. Perhaps we're good at reaching up and we need to learn again to reach out. You know. You know our hearts. You know our frame. You are especially good at showing up. You are especially good at a ministry of reversal so that those who are going one way might learn to go another. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being on our side.
Thank you for the inheritance that you've promised us, an inheritance that can never spoil or fade or perish. Help us as your people to be street smart. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.